Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. Happy to see you folks here. Thanks for joining us today. Um, raise your hand if you like a Bible or a notes page. Robert, thanks for handing those out. Um, put some stuff on the screen for you a bit. And if you're new with us, hope you'll grab a bag of coffee beans. If you meet somebody who's new for the first time, make sure they get a bag of coffee beans. It's just as a gift. Say, thanks for coming. Joining us, they're right outside those doors by the bookstore. Well, we return, my, um, my wife Carmen and Matthias and a couple of our nieces, we returned Friday night. Um, we were in Wisconsin for a couple of weeks. I was serving as the camp pastor at Honey Rock Center for Leadership Development associated with Wheaton College. We love this place. We absolutely believe in this organization. We served at this place the first time in 1998. We were newly minted grad students. We spent the summer there together serving on their summer staff. And since then, we've volunteered there eight times in the last 12 years. So we just keep going back. We really love this place and believe in it. I served as camp pastor, which basically means I just supported the, the staff. They've, it's a huge summer camp. Um, at least on the surface, that's what you see, like a thousand kids um, going through summer camp. But really what's happening is there's leadership training uh, taking place with college students, graduate students. There's a lot of full-time staff there as well. And so they bring pastors in every couple weeks to spend some time there just to support the staff, the college students, the grad students, and the full-time staff. So um, that's what I was doing. I taught seven times in two weeks and, and sat down and met with 28 different people, which was a lot of work, but it was also really inspiring and encouraging. And so we feel, um, we feel rested. We feel encouraged. We also got some time in a canoe, and we swam in the lake, and we, uh, we, we uh, sat out on a porch outside this cabin that they put us up in, and so we got to just have coffee out there together. We Gave uh, the kids to the counselors and signed them in and COVID crazy, COVID, COVID, all this stuff and sign in. We can't walk into the cabins. We got to sign them and they're gone. And then we looked at each other and we're like, ah, it's, just, it's just us. Like it, it, hasn't, it hasn't been just us forever. So uh, that was fun to be able to just connect. So I'm excited to worship with you and to share a sermon with you today. I want to share a few thoughts about these things. The words we use to refer to following Jesus I want to talk about the Feast of St. Benedict, which is today, and I want to talk about education that is experiential, experiential education. In other words, I want to talk about what we learn through words, through example, like through a person, and through experience. What we learn through words, through an example, and through experience. First, let's talk about words, and specifically what I want to talk about, I talk about labels. Here's a question. What is the most common label used to refer to someone who follows Jesus? Christian, right? Yeah, it's pretty well established. It's around the world. Followers of Jesus of Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago are commonly called Christians. The dominant label for people who trust the Bible, believe that the God revealed in the Bible is the true God, who embrace the gospel according to Jesus, who pray to God in the name of Jesus, the common label for, for folks like probably uh, us, is, is Christian, right? So it's so deeply and universally embraced that I find myself surprised whenever I encounter a label other than that for followers of Jesus. So I was really surprised. I mean, I've read it before, but it still surprises me. A couple weeks ago, I was reading in Acts chapter 11, and Luke writes this, the disciples were called Christians 
first in Antioch. Acts 11, like that's pretty deep into the story. You're a third of the way through Acts. So what has already happened? The three-year public ministry of Jesus has already happened. The crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus has already happened. The followers of Jesus have already been filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Months later, Stephen is murdered, first Christian martyr. Then the church disperses, goes all over the world. All of this has already happened. We're probably a full year into the history of the church post-ascension of Jesus. And, And not until now are followers of Jesus called Christians. What have they been called up until this point? In other words, how do you refer to a Christian without calling them Christian? Well, the phrase that apparently was used was the way, the way, followers of the way, or just the way. The first time you see this phrase is in Acts chapter 9. The context is this man, Saul, an expert in Jewish law, a Pharisee. He's persecuting followers of Jesus. He later converts and becomes Paul the apostle. But in chapter 9 of Acts, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he goes to the high priest, asks for letters from him to the synagogues and Damascus, at Damascus, so that if Paul found any of them, these Jews, belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's Acts 9. Ten chapters later, Acts 19 describes how the now apostle Paul, the follower of Christ, moves disciples from one place in Ephesus to another place in Ephesus because a riot has broken out in response to Paul's teaching. Excuse me. And hardened and disobedient people in Ephesus are, quote, speaking evil about the way. So Paul's message is being perceived as part of the way. Luke goes on to write that about this time, no small disturbance arose because of the way. And then at the very end of Acts, Paul is arrested. He's going from trial to trial to trial, defending himself or proclaiming the gospel in front of all kinds of officials. He says this to the Roman governor named Felix. He says, I admit to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. So Paul is like the major preacher of Christianity, right? But even Paul himself at the end of Acts is still referring to the faith or the the way of Jesus as that, as the way. So this term, the way, it shows up several times through Acts, five or six times. In comparison, the word Christian shows up three times in the whole Bible, So here's what I appreciate about that. People can argue like crazy about this. I think most of the arguments don't matter. But here's what I'd like to invite you to consider this morning. I think this is interesting. Following Jesus has more to do with actions than with titles. Following Jesus has more to do with a lifestyle than with a label. Right? And so when we see this following Jesus experience, commitment, devotion, belief called the way or the way of life. It emphasizes what I think is at the core of the whole thing from the start, right? 
versus a label which may or may not um, um, evoke like any kind of necessity around action. I was probably asked 10 times in the last couple of weeks when I was in Wisconsin, what kind of church are you a part of? And so I would share that Emmaus, that's our church, is part of the bigger organization called the Church of the Nazarene. And um, what the Church of the Nazarene, some people have heard of it, some people haven't. So I have this sort of spiel that I sometimes will roll out. The Church of the Nazarene is one of many renewal movements that has risen up or taken place throughout the history of Christianity in America. Whenever Christianity begins to focus so much on a label that it forgets about its lifestyle. And then a renewal movement will take place where people will try to call the church back to the core conviction that this is to be a way of life. The Church of the Nazarene started in Pasadena in the 1890s. And there's a lot of people in Southern California who were carrying the label Christian at that time, but apparently not a lot of people caring for the poor right outside of their church. So in 1895, there's a group of Methodists, a small group of Methodists. In fact, the poor couldn't even come in the church, frankly. Do you know why? Because they rented pews, all right? So the crosses are in the high-dollar pews up here. These are worth more money, right? Debbie, you're in, the, you're in the, the cheaper seats back there, all right? But you would have had to pay to even enter. So like systematically, we talk about systemic issues. There was an issue with the church, at least churches that were considered uh, socially advantageous to be a part of. You had to rent pews even to come in. You had to pay to play. So a group of Methodists who walk by these people who are living on the street and addicted to alcohol, they decide we need to start a rescue mission for these people. And they called the rescue mission the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene, which is a really fascinating title. Pentecost refers to the power of the Holy Spirit. Core to these people's beliefs was that you could emerge free out of addiction, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Divine help was required. Pentecostal, that was what that referred to, even before Pentecostals in our, in our nation's history were really a thing by that label. And then Church of the Nazarene, the word Nazarene refers to, it's a derogative term for Jesus. Did you know that? Uh, but they intentionally embraced it because like Philip's one of the disciples of Jesus. When his brother says, we found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. Philip's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? So essentially, these Methodists who decide we need to live the way of Jesus more than just carry the title Christian, they use this name for their new little rescue mission, the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene, which is, in other words, you could say that the spirit-empowered church for the people who live on the side of the road. That's essentially what the name means. And then other Christians joined with them, and Christians all over the country joined with them and other groups because there was a bigger movement happening in the United States at that time. And it was a movement away from the label Christian, not because there's anything wrong with the word Christian. It was, to be, to be more accurate, it was a movement, it was a, it was a renewal movement. So it was a movement away from just the label or just saying naming yourself Christian, and actually living a life that was um, like Christ. What an idea, right? So this is the way of Christ. Care for those in need. Fundamentally, if Christians aren't caring for those in need, we're, we're missing the core of what it means to actually be Christian. Now, I love the word Christian. I love it. I can't imagine ever dropping that word as a core identifier of who I am. I think it's a beautiful word. But I am challenged by the fact, friends, that for 
a long time, way before followers of Christ were even called Christians, they were referred to as those who lived a certain way. They were followers of the way. They embraced a certain way of living. They were people of action. It was a community of movement. They demonstrated their devotion to Jesus by the way they lived. And I think that's a, um, a challenging and inspiring reality. Anybody got a birthday today by chance? Anybody birthday? Today, so in our culture, um, this is the way we celebrate birthdays. We honor those we love and admire by throwing a party and having a meal or maybe some cake and ice cream on the day that they were born, because that's a really big deal. We're grateful that they were born. For most of Christian history, the way the church honored those we love and admire was to celebrate them on the day of their death, on the anniversary of their death, more specifically. And that's rooted, friends, in a really practical and profound conviction about the reality of the resurrection, right? So the day, the anniversary of a loved one's death is actually, I mean, this is hardcore, but this is actually the anniversary of their true birth, right, into eternal life. And so most of Christian history, for the last 2,000 years, most of what you find Christians celebrating in reference to a certain person is the anniversary, not of their physical birth, but of their death. Today is July 11th, traditionally held as the death day or the saint day or the feast day of St. Benedict, who died in 547 A.D., in Rome or outside of Rome. So today's a feast of St. Benedict. That might sound really weird to some of you. It's essentially like a birthday party, um, influenced by a really practical and profound conviction that the resurrection is real, right? And that on this day, this man was born into eternal life. And now Benedict's been a fascination of mine. Uh, some would say an obsession of mine for more than a decade. Um, he feel, frankly, he feels like a friend to me. Um, I've read his writing enough that I feel like, like, like this affection for this man. And maybe you've never heard of him, so let me just give you a quick introduction to him and then point out one key observation about his influence. At a, at a critical turning point in Western civilization, as Rome crumbled and fell, this young man named Benedict, he started these small communities of Christ followers as a way to restore the church and culture. Now, several years earlier, he had left home to go to college in Rome. But what he found there was just um, complete moral decay, both of church and society. So Benedict dropped out of college in the middle of his first year. He just didn't want anything to do with it. He ventured out into the wilderness. He literally lived in a cave by the river. And I, I got to go see it three years ago. Um, it's just a cave by the river, right? There are several that he and others lived in. Uh, there's like paintings inside, but you can walk right into it. The solitude that he was seeking, he wanted to pursue God in solitude and silence, away from the decrepit, degenerate culture that was Rome at the time and the corrupt church that was the Roman church at the time. But the solitude that he was looking for, it wouldn't last very long because soon young men started to find him in the wilderness 
by the dozens, and then by the hundreds, and he ends up establishing a bunch of little residential communities called monasteries, little communities with a singular focus, that's what monastery means, and then providing a rule for them to live by or a, a way to live. See, for too long, um, Christianity in Rome had been associated with military might and economic advantage. And people were looking for pastors or for priests who were less like politicians and more like pastors. They wanted a humble and holy guide to teach them how to authentically follow Jesus. They weren't finding it in the church. As Rome fell, the strongest system was not the state, it was the church and so the state transferred political power to the bishops, which is a role of ecclesiastical authority, church authority. And that led to all kinds of problems, as you can imagine. And so people looking for the authenticity of the way of Jesus find Benedict. And against the backdrop of this dysfunctional democracy and this corrupt church, the label Christian had become less and less meaningful, as you can imagine. And you should be able to imagine it, actually. Because 6th century Rome culture is a, has a lot of parallels with our culture today. Um, the, the, the crumbling of a democracy in any fair sense of the word, the corruption of the church, at least as it's often presented, some parallels, some similarities. In other words, the dominant form of Christianity in Benedict's day I think is very similar to the dominant form of Christianity in much of our culture in this sense it had a bad reputation, <laughs> okay? Christianity had a bad reputation. And so what the world needed wasn't more words from Christians. The words had become less and less meaningful and effective. What the world needed was people who would live like Christ, who would show others how to live like Christ. The world needed more Christ-like actions and fewer religious titles, the world needed people living spirit-filled lifestyles, not just carrying empty labels. Benedict ends up writing a guide for the men in his little communities. He calls it the regula, which is Latin for basically the way to live. In English, it's translated the rule, not the rules, like these are the rules at the pool, or these are the rules if you're going to drive my car. The rule, the way of life. This is a way to live. And these are the opening lines of the rule of St. Benedict. Listen carefully, my son, to the master's instructions and attend to them with the ear of your heart. This is advice from a father who loves you. Welcome it and faithfully put it into practice. The labor of obedience will bring you back to him from whom you had drifted through the sloth of disobedience. This message of mine is for you then, if you are ready to give up your own will once and for all and armed with the strong and noble weapons of obedience to do battle for the true king, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's good, right? Opening sentences. It's so good. And so then what Benedict does is he invites anyone who wants to to join his community, but he does require three vows upon entrance. There's a little season where you can discern whether this is really going to be for you. But ultimately, it comes down to you got to make three vows. And the interesting thing about vows is they, they anticipate a battle. That's why you make a vow at the front end of a marriage, right? Because you anticipate challenges. 
This is going to be hard. You need something to steal you for the, for the challenge. You need something to, to fortify the effort to really follow through on your intentions. And so Benedict requires three vows. The first vow is the vow of stability, which is a long, lifelong commitment to the monastery or to the, com- to the community and to the rule. In other words, stability is a commitment to this place and these people and the, this purpose that we share. The vow of stability. Second vow that he requires is a vow of obedience. Ultimately, obedience to the teachings of Jesus as presented in the rule and in the community and the authority given in the community. So not some sort of ethereal, theoretical kind of obedience, but a very practical obedience to real people in a real situation. And then the third vow that Benedict required was ongoing conversion. The, the, the Latin actually says ongoing death. But the idea is you continually grow in Christ-likeness. You're promising to do that. Not to rest on your laurels, not to say, well, I was baptized a long time ago, not to say I accepted Christ 20 years ago, not to say my family's been Christian for generations. No, that's not what we're talking about. Continual growth. You commit to always being um, growing in, in your faith. So here's the observation. There's so much that can be said about Benedict, of course. But here's the observation. Benedict writes the way to live, or this rule, as a guide for those in his communities. And it's just so practical. It's so specific. It's so action-oriented that it, here's the observation, it actually helps people. Okay, against the backdrop of a lot of pomp and circumstance and rules, and nobody's got a copy of the Bible themselves, he creates a way to live that is actually helpful for regular people who want not just to believe in Jesus, but to live the way of Jesus. The rule outlined a way to live. It's very short. It's a little teeny book, 73 one-page chapters for the most part, and it's really, really helpful. In fact, it was so helpful, it got passed around to other monasteries, and other monks started reading the rule. And in one monastery, it was a monk named Greg, and Greg picked up the rule, and he started living by it. He never met Benedict, but as Greg matured, he eventually became Pope Gregory the Great, and he recommended the rule of St. Benedict to the whole church, which is kind of like having your book endorsed by Costco or something. It's just everywhere now. Now everyone's going to have access to it. And it's never gone out of print since. 1,400 years. And today, Benedict is the patron saint of all of Europe. Did you know that? Not just because he is credited with rescuing the Roman church, but he's credited with rescuing Western civilization itself, which is amazing. How did he do that? By showing people how to live like Christ. That's how he did it. By showing people a way that was so practical that it was helpful. Here are the closing lines of the rule. Are you hastening toward your heavenly home? Then with Christ's help, keep this little rule that we have written for beginners. I just love it. So against the backdrop of a lot of empty words and a lot of meaningless labels, Benedict embraces a lifestyle of devotion, and then he invites others to join in with him. He essentially says, this is the way, and then he models it in community, residential community, eating, sleeping, working, praying right alongside 11 other guys. These were all small little groups. 
All right, a final thought. As I said, I, uh, we spent the last couple of weeks serving in Honey Rock, which is like a laboratory for spiritual formation. It's like a workshop for, for development. It is a remarkably effective place. And uh, there's a lot of reasons why. Um, people have prayed for this place and in this place for 70 years. Um, there's great leadership. There's a lot of things you could point to. But, but one of the reasons, and I think it's a prominent one, that it's so effective is because the, the method of formation used there is experiential education. It's experiential education. It's not all about book learning. You're not always hearing lectures. I mentioned I, I taught seven times. Most of my teachings were these little 10-minute truths that then led into long seasons of um, application and reflection in the wilderness, right? And so there's a season of training at this place, but there's long seasons where they go into seasons of application or actually working these truths out in the way they're living. And I love it because all this great work is happening all around. You've got like a thousand kids at camp, but What's really happening is that there are college students and graduate students and full-time staff who are doing the work, who are in this fully immersed experience of trying to wrestle with what they believe about Jesus and to make it like the way they live for Jesus. They're trying to take their beliefs and translate it into their actions. And I think there are two big reasons why a place like Honey Rock becomes such a powerful place for this kind of real-life transformation. The first is the whole thing's happening in residential community, which reorganizes almost everything that we do in terms of our spirituality because we're so individualistic. So one of the reasons it's so helpful, the whole thing's happening in community. And then the second reason it's so powerful is their, their philosophy, thanks, Jacob, their philosophy is holistic. So you always hear these phrases happening. Um, there's, you're exposed to a truth, you experience that truth, and then you reflect on that truth. Let me break those down just quickly. You and I, in our lives, typically, we have a lot of access to truth. We have a lot of access to books, to podcasts. You could hear me preach today. You could hear a million people preach today if you wanted to. We are in no, there's no shortage of information, even Christian information. So we, we do really well with this whole, like, Im information is important. What we don't do so well with is experience, living out our faith. In fact, sometimes our Bible studies emphasize this to a way that's cringy. We'll say, what would it look like if we actually did what Jesus says? We're talking about it. We're not actually going out and doing it, right? And then there's even less time spent for most of us in reflection, which means there's very little integration of the truth that we're told and our experience. We may, in other words, we may know the truth, but the truth doesn't feel like it's changing us. Do you ever feel like that? Like, I know this doctrine, but this doctrine's not affecting me. I believe this in my head, but it's not, I'm, it's not resulting in greater comfort or greater power or greater peace. And so we get frustrated is what happens, at least to me. We stop believing that real change is possible. We stop teaching that people can actually become holy in this life, which is a foreign concept to the early church. They absolutely believed you could become holy in this life. And, and we just give up on developing any real practical spiritual life. Jesus says this, it's so helpful in this regard. 
He says, if you are really my disciples, you'll obey my teachings. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Politicians, every four years, quote the very last part, truth will set you free. And they eradicate it from the root of the truth, which is (laughs) obedience comes first, right? You obey first, then you know or you experience the truth, and that experience is what sets you free. This is the way. This is a lifestyle. This is a way of living. You know the truth by obeying the teachings. The experience leads to real knowledge. Being a Christian is not just embracing a label, in other words. It's hearing the truth. It's living out that truth. That's experience. And then it's reflecting on that truth. And that reflection is so important because that's when the integration happens. That's when the dots connect. And I realize that this idea of reflection taking time to reflect is just such a challenge for probably everybody, but especially for many in our culture. This morning, there were literally moms and dads holding kids, and I'm thinking, like, when are you going to have time for reflection? Some of you, somebody told me they travel 45 weeks a year this morning. When are you going to have time? But the reflection is such an important part of that puzzle, of that process, because it's the reflection. It's in those times of reflection that we make, that we connect the dots. This is why this belief and this experience actually matters. We begin to see it lived out in our life. Benedict sought to restore the heartbeat of the Christian faith. He set a very high bar. He required vows. Those vows, again, really quickly, stick with it. That's stability. Don't give up. You're called to surrender everything to Jesus, to submit to the word and to community. That's how it gets fleshed out in practicality. And you were called to do so continually, to grow continually. That's that ongoing conversion. Don't rest on growth from 10 years ago, right? That you're called to something better. This is the way. Labels had lost much of their meaning for Benedict's age. And so it was lifestyle that mattered. And I see great parallels with that today. So let me wrap up by asking just three really practical questions. Maybe you can write these down. First question, what are you listening to? What are you reading? Or in other words, what content are you taking in? Are you reading the Bible? Not Have you read the Bible? Are you reading the Bible? Did you read the Bible yesterday? Will you read the Bible today? Will you read it tomorrow? How are you taking in truth? Second question. How are you practicing your faith? Like, what are you doing? How are you engaging with or responding to the teachings of Jesus? What are you working on right now? Not just thinking about, but working on. If you ask an athlete, what are you working on? Is it speed? Is it endurance? Is it strength? They will tell you what they're doing to accomplish that specific. What are you working on? What issue? What challenge? What grief? Are you in the process of trying to apply your faith to? What are you doing about Are you fasting? Are you giving? Are you serving? Can you point to any way in which you're actually obeying Jesus in action? Are you confronting 
with love and truth? Are you, are you waking up early? Are you scheduling time? Because reflection doesn't just happen. Action doesn't just happen. Practice doesn't just happen. Um, just really quick, the, uh, the end of my time at Honey Rock, first week, a lot of encouragement. The second week, it's like kids know you're leaving and you become the safe pastor to confess sin to because then you're going to leave in a couple of days, you know. Um, I experience it every time we're there, and it's some heavy stuff, some really heavy stuff. This one young man in his mid-20s, he talked to me for like an hour, and then this couple that was at a table about 20 feet away got up and left, and he goes, okay, now. And I was like, oh, okay, now we're going to get into what's real. Um, he, and he confessed to me that he'd been abused several times as a very young child by people he should have been able to trust. And the last season of his life, years, had just been terrible. It's been an absolute disaster because of his own sin. And then he said, but if I say anything, everything's going to blow up. That's what he said. Because he still is in relationship with these people that offended him. And I tried very tenderly to be able to say, if you don't say anything, <laughs> you're already blowing up. You're already a mess. You can't carry all of this sin yourself, all of this hurt yourself. Very severe situation. But he, and to practice his faith in a God who heals, he's got to confront, right? He's got to talk. This is hard work. Practicing your faith is not like morning devotion by the lake. I mean, sometimes that's the practice it takes, but well, the shape it takes, but often it's something that's very challenging. A young woman talked to me. She had just lost her father. So now any unresolved issue feels impossible to resolve because it's a shut door. At least it feels like that, right? And the more I talked to these kids and the more they, tr they shared really painful stuff with me, the more it just pressed in the importance. This has got to be practiced. If we're not teaching people how to put this into practice, we're not serving them at all. We're just teaching them a bunch of stuff to believe that actually never filters into lifestyle. So that's that second question. How are you practicing your faith? How are you working towards freedom and wholeness and obedience to Jesus? And then the third question, final question is, when are you reflecting? How are you taking time to integrate through reflection, whether in silence or by journaling or by talking to somebody like a friend or a pastor or a counselor, where is there space in your life to connect the dots so that progress is made? So that you don't spin around, spin around, spin around the same problem for the next 15, 20 years of your life. Reflection is so hard in our culture. We just go fast, hard all the time. We're shallow and busy. But reflection is critical because that's where the dots get connected. All right. Well, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, which is wonderful. I think Christian is a great name. It means those who call themselves in reference to Christ. Those who refer to themselves in reference to Christ. I love the label Christian. I think it's wonderful. But way, may we not forget that in the earliest days when the church was full of love and power, they were known so prominently by their lifestyle, by the way that they lived, that they were simply called the way. Right? The way. Let's pray together.